Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. I'm Joel Holland. In this episode, I speak to Lord Peter Hain, author of numerous books, including two of his most recent, which we build this discussion around, A Rhino Conspiracy, released this summer in paperback, and his autobiography, A Pretoria Boy. Peter grew up in South Africa under apartheid rule before moving to the UK with his family. We discuss how both of his books focused on the historical and recent corruption in South African politics and some of the more incredible parts of his personal journey. So, Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's great to be with you, Joe, and to support your Progressive Britain initiative. I really, really enjoyed reading both your books. Thoroughly enjoyed the kind of crash course in South African history that I've given myself over the past kind of couple of weeks. I wasn't terribly well versed in it, but such a fascinating recent history. I want to start asking you about the Rhino Conspiracy. What was it that initially motivated you to write a book about Rhino poaching? Because you invoked, as you explained in Pretoria Boy, you invoked parliamentary privilege to talk about... Um, the legal diamond trade, amongst other things, but never for rhino horn smuggling. So was the initial plan to write an allegory of the corruption of the past decade, um, and you saw rhino smuggling as a good conduit for that story, or was the initial motivation to write a novel about rhinos, was it the safari and the action, the rhinos, the poaching itself, that motivated you to write it? It was a bit of all of that. After I stepped down as an MP, after Ed Miliband the year before, uh, in 2014, that is, had surprisingly asked me out of the blue to go to the House of Lords. Uh, my reaction was, uh, I don't agree with the place, I think it should be reformed, to which he replied, that's why I'd like you to go there. Anyway, I stepped down as an MP at the 2015 election after I'd represented Neath for a quarter of a century, and Elizabeth, my wife, and I went for a safari uh, on holiday that August, September, in a wonderful wildlife park called Tula Tula in KwaZulu Natal. And it was seeing rhinos chomping away peacefully in the bush uh, that, um, and realizing that they were under 24 7 security guarding. 
uh, and, and seeing it there and kept that, that image and experiencing it. And obviously I knew broadly about rhino poaching, but made me think much more deeply about it. And then finding out from the, um, from the rangers about the extent of the problem and at the same time becoming much more aware visiting South Africa more often than I'd been able to do um, when I was a member of parliament because you know the job is 24-7. Um, I, I had more time and in the House of Lords I had more time and I found myself going back more and then teaching there and it was the two and becoming much more aware of the corruption and the extent of the the trail of the freedom struggle led so wonderfully by Nelson Mandela and internationally by Oliver Tambo that my parents had taken part in as activists in South Africa, very brave that they were, and also I had, um, and a feeling of real gut-wrenching betrayal at this, the shameless corruption and cronyism that former President Zuma presided over with his colleagues, the Gupta brothers, his cronies, business cronies, and the plundering of taxpayer resources and the extent to which public utilities like the electricity supply and uh, and power company ESCOM and the South African Airways, all nationalized industries, have become dysfunctional and need and bankrupt because of this corruption. Uh, it was the thought that I could then bring the two together because when I, the more I researched about rhino poaching, the more I realized that there were international criminal syndicates equivalent to drug traffickers and terrorists and, and really serious organized crime behind poaching, whether they're rhinos or elephants, and often corrupt politicians protecting them, whether in Africa or, or East Asia. So, uh, by the way, I mentioned East Asia because that's where the consumer demand is. So I thought, well, maybe I could try my hand at writing a thriller that brought these two themes together because they were from real life. And as, as somebody who reads thrillers when I get spare time, which isn't very often, I, I thought I'd try it. And that's how the Rhino Conspiracy was born. Some of the characters, like the president, very clear who the president is supposed to be, the inspiration for some of the characters clearly comes from your life and from recent um, South African history. For example, the uh, white woman who offers food and kindness to the future Supreme Court judge, and then after reading a Pretoria Boy, realised that was predicated on your mum. That's right, um, yes. <laughs> but are there, are there other characters... Um, who might not be obvious to people who don't know that much about South African history. And I'm thinking in particular of Moses Koza. Correct me if I say these names wrong, please. But Moses Koza, the corrupt but kind of self-aware official, very close to the president. Um, and uh, Van der Merwe, how do you say his last name? Uh, it was Moses Koza and Va Van der Merwe. Van der Merwe, actually. Pete Van der Merwe, yeah. <laughs> Van der Merwe, okay, that's a tough one to me. Um, <laughs> who engaged in the smuggling with him. So those two, I'm really interested to see where you came up with those characters and also the two main younger characters, the, the lovers. Yeah, well, let's start with Moses Causa. I, I took some of his um, his character from uh, from a, a real figure, a real ANC hero, but that ANC hero, so it's not fair to um, uh, to mention his name, though it's part of his biography from the Soweto uprising in 1976. He, he was a real figure there. He went to Robben Island. 
Uh, so that part of it is biographical based on a, on a real struggle hero. But then Causa going bad as the president um, who's fictional character, but it's not difficult to guess who he might be based on. Um, his, his security chief is Causa. Uh, and there, and it's in that role and the kind of um, transformation from freedom, freedom struggle hero to corrupt security chief, uh, his his whole lifestyle and his family dependent on his self enrichment through, in this case, the smuggling uh, of uh, and the rhino poaching. Um, it was a it was a kind of almost a parable in itself, a parable in itself of the way that. The ANC became corrupt, um, and I, I think, I hope, at any rate, you'll agree that the character of Causa is not a kind of, you know, he's not a total villain. He is, as you describe him, a rather self-aware villain, uh, and he's a bit conflicted. But in the end, you know, his uh, his material needs of the time triumph over what his original values were. Um, in the case of Van der Merwe, I think he's a pretty typecast um, figure of his era who was involved in the shady sort of mercenary side of, of apartheid and has just seamlessly moved into opportunities for similar activity in, in the, around the corruption. He doesn't like the transformation. He didn't like Mandela becoming president. He doesn't. He, he he's he sort of hates the idea of of of, of no, no longer being part of a privileged white elite in in ruling the country, but at the same time he's benefiting from it because the um, the corrupt rulers in in, in under the the president and Causa are the ones who are giving him lots of money uh, so that he can continue his kind of quasi criminal or actual criminal activity. There are other figures in the, uh, I mean, the, Isaac Mkhizi, the ranger, uh, is based on a couple of rangers in safari parks, different safari parks that I met and I've kind of amalgamated them and the sort of the experiences and the characters that that I witnessed and, and uh, engaged with. Tundi um, Majeka, uh, her surname is based on the domestic worker and very close friend of our family in Pretoria in the early 1960s. And if you... I did noticed, think that possibly was true when reading yeah, Pretoria. Yeah, okay. when you read the Pretoria boy, you'll see that even Majeka, who in in the Rhino Conspiracy is the kind of fictional grandmother of, um, of Tundi, who's a born free, um, that's to say born after 1994, after the transition from apartheid when Mandela became president, uh, for a while, that label is, has become unfashionable. Um, but for a while, that uh, that was the kind of generation that had never known apartheid. So she's, I think, um, I mean, she, for, for me, she's the heroine of, of the whole story and a very strong character. And I hope, I hope you like her. I hope you kind of engage with her. She's very feisty feminist and, and, and radical activist um, uh, and you know she, her character is molded out of a combination of people that I've worked with in in my life in the anti-apartheid struggle and also in, in Labour Party and radical politics and anti-racist politics um, but she's also somebody who understands her history and a lot of the younger generation don't 
So you see in her that she's very different from her peers, um, her school friends, her generation that are more interested in, you know, the things that kids are interested in rather than the history and the values that propel her. The veteran, um, who's her kind of uh, uh, mentor, is based on a real figure uh, in, uh, and a friend of mine, yeah. Um, those familiar with South African politics recognize him instantly. Um, uh, and uh, and I usually don't say who, who he is, but everybody kind of knows. But he's, he's based, so I used, I used him and I know him and he's a very close friend. Um, and I use a lot of uh, um, his biographical background to to provide the context for him, but then I kind of give him a role in this in this thriller, which is entirely fictional, but probably very typical of what he would have done in this situation. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. Um, in terms of Tunde, I was struck by the, I mean, initially the parallels of your the way that you describe yourself in a Pretoria boy, um, and being more political than your peers a lot of the time or being very political within your peer group but also by this George Orwell quote that always gets thrown around when you talk about um, South Africa which is the George Orwell quote I think it's George Orwell he says everything is political and in the not in the novel she says that constantly you have her saying that a lot that yes. everything is political yes. um, so I just, I just saw those parallels there um, yeah you're, you're right and of course in the in, in the in the developing relationship uh, love relationship with and Kesey, the ranger, you know, he's he doesn't think of himself as political at all. Uh, and of course, he's true. That's true of most people, isn't it, Joe? <laughs> you and I are unusual animals, and we're highly political. Uh, if you think of your classmates, how many of them are like you? Probably very few. Um, and, and that was true for me. So, in that sense, we're not that different. Though my story is unusual for you know, as, as a Labour Party member. Um, and so Isaac Mkisi, uh, the ranger, you know, he sees himself as a, he's a wildlife person. That's, that's his love, that's his mission, that's his career, where she, you know, is a political activist. And so they come from these two different worlds and then they realise that actually these worlds are, are colliding and merging and that's how they begin to get more self-aware about each other and he becomes more political as he becomes educated by her. I'm, I was, uh, I'm not going to give the story away for someone who hasn't read it, but I was pleased the way that they ended. I was getting worried at certain <laughs> points in the novel that they wouldn't end yeah. as I wanted them to. Um, well, it was meant to, you know, it's meant to kind of hold you turning the pages to find out. Show. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly what it did. Um, turn into Pretoria boy. You talk in, the first hundred or so pages a lot about the stress of living under the eyes of apartheid security forces. Um, and for example, when your parents are both separately banned and forced to only interact with one person at any given time. In Rhino Conspiracy, there's a constant threat for the veteran, the sniper, uh, Major Yasmin and Tandi in particular being constantly followed. How much of that threat from state security and the furtiveness that your characters in the Rhino Conspiracy felt. Um, how much of that comes from your own experience living under the apartheid regime with your parents representing the Liberal Party, particularly when the ANC 
get banned and then the Liberal Party is kind of the, the real focus of the apartheid government and security forces at that point. How much of those things are, you know, how much of your what you wrote in the Rhino Conspiracy has come from that experience? I think a fair amount of it, but also I became much more aware before I started writing the Rhino Conspiracy and then during it, as I as I explained, I was visiting South Africa more and more um, sort of four or five times a year some, in some cases around 2016, 2017, 2018. I was teaching uh, at the university in Johannesburg, at Pitts University, um, uh, and now I've, I've switched to teaching at Pretoria University. Um, and I realized the extent to which, under former President Zuma, the state security apparatus had been turned. It had originally, under apartheid, been a political uh, security machine, not to catch criminals, or but to cap, to to, to um, defeat and suppress the political opposition. That's what the police and the security services were about under apartheid. Mandela cleaned all that up and established a set of intelligence. Uh, services and security apparatus, including the police, was designed to uphold the rule of law and treat people, you know, and catch the real criminals and terrorists, not political uh, opponents of the government. But Zuma then actually reproduced <laughs> in his new security empire, which became his personal fiefdom, many features of the old apartheid state. Uh, and it became a a, a uh, both a a mechanism for for extending corruption, but also a uh, a force for targeting his political opponents, both within the ANC and elsewhere. So I became very aware that actually, you know, like I described at the beginning of the Pretoria Boy, when I was asked to expose the international dimension to the corruption and cronyism, uh, hence, you know, the use of parliamentary privilege in the House of Lords to do so. Uh, when, and everybody asked me to talk, switch my, we all switched our mobile phones off, and it was explained to me just how they, they were under surveillance. It reminded me of my Pretoria boyhood. So this was, you know, 2017, for goodness sake. So this is well into... South Africa's new democracy. And here you find uh, brave ANC activists resisting the Zuma corruption and criminality, um, actually under surveillance and being targeted by the security forces themselves. Uh, and, you know, as I was in their orbit, potentially I could have been as well. So I try to capture that. And it's, it does, I think, accurately. And people who've read it have been in this world, in, in the modern era of resistance against um, uh, corruption and criminality, say that it actually captures exactly what happened and what was happening at that time. And, and you know, it's still remnants of it that President Ramaphosa is trying to kind of root out. It's, yeah, it's really interesting to, to see the reflection of the, the way that they both, the uh, surveillance under apartheid and then under former President Zuma and, and the way that the, the parallels between them, but so so separated in time and separated by Nelson Mandela's presidency, which... And ideology, you know. Yeah, and here, you know, Zuma, of course, um, was a... spent 10 years on Robben Island himself. You know, he was uh, involved in the struggle. 
um, you know, I mean, he had a far from unblemished record, and and uh, the evidence is that he was already, you know, taking kickbacks and doing in and, and putting stuff in his back pocket himself, even while he was in the push for the ANC in Africa and so on. But um, you know, it, it, Zuma himself played an important role in the struggle, and yet he's ended up the way he did, like Robert Mugabe did. You know, there's a something that I think all of us um, involved in in that period need to understand better why it's happened, because it isn't just South Africa. Uh, it is also Nicaragua, for example. You know, Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas were heroic figures in the in the 70s and the 80s for those of us in the anti-apartheid struggle and in the Labour Party. Um, if you look back at that period, well, it, you know, Sandinistas and under Ortega have been completely corrupt uh, and dictatorial and authoritarian, and he himself has betrayed all of those values. So it isn't only South Africa where this happened. Your parents seem like incredibly brave people. Um, and you clearly fit the mould. Speaking at John Harris' funeral when you were 16, was it? 15 or 16? 15, yeah. Um, going through the trauma of knowing what had happened to him, then receiving a letter bomb in England, being targeted by the British security forces, the South African state, being brought to court twice on ludicrous charges, You know, not to mention leaving your home country because your father's been blocked from working. Is it only when you look back at these events and moments that you realize how special of a story it is and how much happened to you before you before you turned 30 what and what impact did your parents have on you being able to deal with all this stuff that that hit you so early well first of all i've i've always admired them uh some children of anti-apartheid activists in that era resented what happened to them and their parents, uh, it's their parents' activism because it was a tough time. You know, families were uprooted like ours, and a lot suffered even more uh, than we did. We never saw ourselves as suffering; we saw ourselves as coping more than suffering. A lot, a lot were treated much worse than us, especially uh, black families. Um, and my parents, uh, I, you know, they they displayed a selflessness and a a, a a commitment to a sense of values and duty, which was not in their interests as a family, and uh, not in their self-interest at all. Um, they lost everything, uh, including the country that they were born in and, and loved, um, and felt they were turning their back on on, on their comrades in the struggle. Um, but you know, I think of a close friend of mine. I think I mentioned this in in the Pretoria Boy, who. Uh, of my age, much brighter than me, much better sports, uh, much better sport than I was, uh, and who committed suicide a year after coming into exile. So this is a tough business. Um, I obviously this is very formative for me in in every sense. It's informative in the way that I've been a Labour MP, a government minister, and and, and all the things I've been fortunate enough to do within the Labour Party, and I regard myself as privileged to have been a, a representative and in a way still a representative. I mean, these are special positions that don't fall to 
many of us as Labour Party members and, uh, you know, for anybody who thinks they are special in getting this, these positions, no, you're, you're lucky and you're privileged. Um, but I, I, it, it has been formative, Joe, because that's the way I see the world. I don't see the class system as somebody born into it, like somebody like you is, um, consciously or unconsciously. Somebody born in Britain is born into a class system that is still alive and well, not as harsh as it once was, but it's still very much alive. Um, so I don't see it in that way. I don't. So that that's my kind of attitude. Also. Um, I think two other things I'd, I'd pick up. One, uh, an impatience with high-flying rhetoric and grandstanding and a desire simply to just get things done. Because in, in you know, anti-apartheid politics, particularly in my childhood, was literally black and white in every sense. But it was also life and death in lots of ways. Um, so it was kind of in, in vivid technicolor technicolor rather than a lot of British politics, which has its own dramas, but these are, as it were, in 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 much more grey and granular, they much greyer and granular in terms of the sharpness of the issues. I mean, I, I care passionately about the lack of equality in Britain and the, the extent of poverty and the stunting of ambition and opportunity and a lot of other things. And Passionately uh, opposed to Brexit and, and, and uh, unapologetic Ramona, uh, I think it's been disastrous. So I do feel passionately about British politics, but I think when you have been through a kind of life and death politics and experienced that uh, as a child, um, and then you know uh, subsequently being a foot soldier in the anti-apartheid movement. You see politics in a slightly different way, and some of the things that people get upset about, some of the personality clashes and the jockeying for position and all of that that goes on in the Labour Party, I've always had, I've had very little time for, um, and always been impatient over. So I, I suppose it's 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 affected me in that way, and and of course a lot of others as well, including a you know a, an uncompromising commitment to anti-racism and. In, in all its forms. The British security apparatus, being MI5 particular, at that time, kind of trying to bring you down or trying to bring the Liberal Party down, trying to bring the Labour Party down. I mean, to me, that seems... Well, I mean, that must have been such a difficult thing to deal with, the, the, an entire state security apparatus you knew were on your back. I mean, what was that like? Well, that period in the, in the mid-1970s, which I tried to kind of explain, I hope convincingly in, in that chapter around the bank theft and why it happened when I ended up being charged with a bank theft I didn't even know had occurred. I knew nothing about it when I was arrested. Um, it's a crazy story, that, really. It is. It's surreal. It's Anybody who's le read Franz Kafka's The Trial. Really Kafkaesque, yeah. It, 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 it certainly was. And in some ways, you know, it's hard to believe it ever happened, but it certainly did. Um, and there were certainly, there were factions inside <clears throat> MI5 in particular, and I've documented this, and been written about by former MI5 and intelligence officers that were in, involved in a big right-wing um, plot 
uh, to destabilise the, the Labour government of that period and to get a right-wing Conservative government. So that was a political use of the intelligence services. It is, it is much more difficult to imagine that happening now because partly of reforms that we introduced as a Labour government and the, the greater transparency and accountability that there is for both, for all in, you know, the three main intelligence services, MI5, MI6 and GCHQ. And, but at that time, you know, yes, I was targeted. I, there was an MI5, <clears throat> there was an MI5 file on me as the head of MI5. Stephen Lander came to tell me when I was a, a Labour minister in the Foreign Office. Um, and the special branch, um, as I discovered, I knew at the time were tapping my phone and in the late 60s and, and the 70s and following me around. And when the undercover policing officer's inquiry was established, and I gave evidence to it earlier this year, uh, into undercover policing and the scandals around it that have been revealed in recent years. Um, and when I was shown all the documentation from special Metropolitan Police Special Branch files, it turns out there was, and I was shown it in you know, the, the rules of the inquiry, or you get shown a lot of stuff, but you can't openly talk about it in specific terms. Um, you sign that kind of agreement of confidentiality, uh, but obviously you can talk about it in general terms. And it turns out that for, you know, since the late 60s, going right the way through to when I was an MP in the early 90s, there was a uh, an undercover police officer in almost every meeting that I was at. Some of them completely um, you know, trivial and uh, non-consequential uh, meetings about old age pensioners, <laughs> meetings about um, the environment and, and so on. And the question I asked when I gave my evidence, and I, and I say this in, in the Pretoria Boy, is that actually our intelligence services in that era were on the wrong side of, of history. They were effectively, they were targeting anti-apartheid activists like me and many others, and anti-racist activists, including you know, the family of Stephen Lawrence, Labour peer Doreen Lawrence, his mother. They were infiltrating, this is recently, police were covering that up. So I don't think we should be complacent that these things are consigned to history, but you know, for somebody of your generation, reading about what happened to um, our Labour government, let alone what happened to me as, a, as, a, uh, as, a, as an anti-apartheid activist or when I was active as a, as a radical young liberal before, before I joined the Labour Party in 1977. Yeah, I mean, it's important people know that history because it it's, it's, uh, has great salience. And, and it's, you know, the thing I, I think so important for all Labour Party members and particularly young members you know, is not to become bookish and, and, and engrossed in only reading our history, but to understand it because it is important. It is important to know that we came from struggles for trade union rights and votes for women and votes for working men uh, and, and to extend trade union and workers' rights as well. It's important that, you know, we understand that history rather than see it see the Labour Party as just something that's landed in, in, in our current era. Of course, and a, a big part of that history is, is sport and a big part of the furor and the attention 
around and towards you was because of what you were doing when it came to cricket and rugby and disrupting these tours. Um, and you talk about how later in the 70s and 80s you were pragmatic when it was brought to your attention that potentially you could mitigate uh, segregation within sport, not necessarily have the impact South African society in general, but that you thought it was a good idea to have an impact on sport, if you could, at that point. Is that something that you started off with in 1969 when you started dictating this protest against the sport? Was that something you saw as the end goal? Or, or was it was it initially just something that you thought you had to do something, you had to do anything to combat the, this, this apartheid government? Well, well, remember that sport under apartheid was uniquely organised for sport across the world in that you couldn't play for your country if you didn't have a white skin. So that, for example, Basil D'Oliveira, the, the top South African cricket star who happened to be um, of mixed blood parentage, in other words, designated a coloured South African under apartheid, could not play for the top clubs, the top provincial sides or his own national side because the apartheid uh, laws barred that and had to come to England and ended up being a top England cricketer. Uh, from 1966, when I came to Britain as a 16-year-old, as a, as, a, as a cricket fan, and saw him play for England, so so sport was in a very different, you know, sport sport under apartheid was unique. There's been nothing um, like it ever since, or, or only to some extent before under Nazi, under the Nazis in their in their treatment of the Jews, and I. And the comparison in another book I've recently co-written with my friend Andre Udendahl called Pitch Battles, I wrote the section on on sport and Nazism in the Berlin Olympics of 1936, and the the language used by Nazi leaders, the policies they implemented to exclude uh, Jewish German citizens from the opportunity to use local gyms or to to take advantage of their their sporting excellence to rise up the ladder to become, to represent their country in the Olympic team, which was barred by by the Nazis. So that was the only parallel. And why I targeted sport um, as a nineteen year old and found myself leading a campaign, never never imagining uh, that I'd lead a, a mass national campaign to target the nineteen sixty nine seventy Springbok tour, was partly because I was passionate about sport. Most young white South African boys are and were certainly of my generation. Um, and I was passionate about the anti-apartheid cause and saw the opportunity to really make a big difference, which is, you know, has been my watchword all through my political career spanning over half a century, um, to focus on where you can really make a difference. To, to try for the bigger goals, of course, I was in favour of economic sanctions, campaign for those, in favour of an arms embargo, campaign for that. But we could physically, by running on the pitch at Twickenham or Lord's Cricket Ground, we could physically stop white South African, whites only South African teams, because they were never South African, they were only white South African, from playing. And we did. And we disrupted through nonviolent direct action. Um, the Springboks tour of 1969-70, I was arrested quite a few times and carried out of the ground and dumped outside, um, having tried to get on the pitch. 
Uh, and then we stopped the cricket tour of 1970, which was um, always the objective of the Stop the 70 Tour campaign that I helped conceive and, and ended up leading. Um, and that had a seismic impact because, you know, South Africa was used to being shunned in the United Nations and looked down upon and, you know, Britain's prime ministers of whatever political colour said they all were all opposed to apartheid, but we continued to trade with South Africa, we continued to arm South Africa, except for a period under Labour when we um, banned arms sales that the Tories promptly repealed when they got into power in 1970 and resumed them. So I was in, you know, um, South, white South Africa was used to being, everybody said how distasteful they found apartheid, but actually they continued to trade and arm and have sporting contact. And for the Springboks, and you know, to come and be fated because they were the best team in the world at this time, be fated as the mighty Springboks that uh, you know, given lavish hospitality, and then there were tours over there in the sunshine. So it was a big deal for them when suddenly these tours were stopped. And if you talk, you know, as I did to Nelson Mandela afterwards, he said how important it was that campaign. Uh, if you if you talk to white South Africans today, they will tell you many of them still hate me, um, and the ones who don't will say it it had an incredible impact. So you know, um, in in the end, yeah, I was a small part of of that history of ultimate victory by the anti-apartheid movement. I mean, very interestingly, at one point in Pretoria, boy, you talk about how you were in Lord's Cricket Ground. Um, after apartheid ended and there was still some people in the vip section in the box who were muttering about you and who still yeah. still hated you from from 30 years prior um what do you see in the current take a knee protests over the kind of the last 18 months or so um because that's obviously a protest against racism in sport and it's really i mean in my lifetime is the biggest use of sport as a vehicle for protest that i've ever seen so how do you feel when you see players taking the knees regularly? Oh, I strongly support it and, uh, and really observe with, with great admiration the stance taken by players like uh, sports stars like Lewis Hamilton, who's a friend, um, so I'm a Formula One fan, and Raheem Sterling, who plays for the wrong team because I'm a Chelsea fan. But uh, Raheem Sterling's been very brave. So has Marcus Rashford. Um, Megan Rapinoe, the the US um, football captain, speaking out strongly um, uh, for women's rights in, in, in sport and for equality generally. Um, you know, it's only a few years since sports, Colin Kaepernick, who was the first one to take the, the knee um, as an American uh, uh, football star, um, he... Uh, you know, he was sacked effectively. Uh, and you go back to Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who in the 1968 um, Olympics at Mexico, they were, they were gold and silver medal winners. They raised the, their black power salute for, against racism in America, which was absolutely rampant then, um, even more so than, than it is now. And they were completely castigated, shunned, um, lost their jobs and all sorts of consequences. So to see uh, sports stars taking the knee and standing up for 
themselves as blacks as black stars, like you know Lewis Hamilton or Raheem Sterling, and to see them getting traction and the blessing of the football establishment, the motor racing establishment, the sporting establishment generally, which has always turned its back on moral and social justice questions, and to some extent still does. I mean, that's been a big shift. Now, I'd only qualify that by saying that, you know, these are stars at the top of their, their sports. Lewis Hamilton didn't speak out, as he himself has openly acknowledged, until he was a seven times world champion and probably the best Formula One driver the world has ever known. Um, so he, he had a status and, a, and, a, and an unassailability that enabled him to, to give expression to his views. Raheem Sterling's an England international, you know, the Manchester City Stars, one of the best teams in the world. Um, uh, and so they, in a way, they're a bit untouchable in the current climate. And that does show a, a progressive shift. But, you know, the fact that they're still, they still get booed for taking the knee by England's fans and by a lot of a lot of football fans in different stadia around around the Premier League and, and in the lower leagues shows there's still a lot of grassroots racism and a lot of and a big battle still to win. Can we turn to Nelson Mandela? You mentioned speaking to him on multiple occasions. For someone who grew up in the nineties like me, he was I mean iconic is an understatement. You defend him in a Pretoria boy from the rather niche criticism that he sold out by not completely restructuring the economy to take economic power totally out of the hands of the white elite. And you defend him from that charge under the reasoning that taking economic power totally out of the hands of the white elite would have caused mass capital flight from South Africa and destroyed the economy. But given what's happened to South Africa's economy over the past decade, at least partially due to, as you say in Pretoria, boy, the lingering inequality of ownership over the economy, do you still think it would have played out worse had the ANC decided in the 90s under Mandela to completely uproot the economic status quo at that point? Well, first, those critics who accuse Nelson Mandela of being a sellout uh, are relatively small. Um, it, group of, of radical intellectuals um, in, in the current era. And you know, first of all, I think their critique is ahistorical. When Mandela came to power and in the transition from a brutal apartheid state that, by the way, murdered more people, more people, including his followers, in the period from when he walked to to freedom from prison in February 1990 to when he became president a little over four years later in April 1994, um, more people were killed. So the old apartheid state was still trying to cling on to power and there was a lot of third force activity and shadowy, shady murder, murder squads and so on effectively presided over by President F.W. de Klerk who was nevertheless freeing, freed Mandela and, and was negotiating uh, a transition. They were still trying to cling on to power. So, you know, the, the they had all the fighting power. Yeah, the ANC had guerrilla forces and, and a certain military, paramilitary strength through its uh, underground for, uh, 
force MK in, in contour PC's way. But um, the truth is, the army was under apartheid white control. The police were under apartheid uh, white control. The security forces were. The economy was. Uh, so the ANC, there was the kind of stasis had been reached where the ANC had the power to wreck the economy and wreck the governability of the country and effectively trigger a civil war. It was on the brink of that. So, and the white minority had lost the ability to stop that and realized mm -hmm. it's more intelligent elements realize that there had to be change. So this is a very delicate time. And those that say that he was a sellout um, and that the transition was somehow a betrayal effectively are advocating a revolutionary course um, where you had a bloody civil war and then the ANC somehow won against this massive military and, and security might. And um, I think that would have been terrible. Uh, and I think the country would not have recovered from it, still wouldn't have done it. And if you look at what happened to Angola, and I mentioned this, and, and, and Mozambique in particular, two former Portuguese um, uh, colonies, where there were you know, pretty vicious guerrilla wars, vicious in the sense the Portuguese were ruthless in in in, in uh, their killing power, and the guerrillas were pretty kind of um, ruthless as well. It was a serious civil war and a serious battle being fought to the end. Um, and you had a society just destroyed by that and uh, took generations to recover. And Mozambique still not fully Angola because of its vast resources you know, is now economically strong, but still in an awful lot of problems, including corruption in the society. Well, I think South Africa's experience has been a better example. But, and, and by the way, if Mandela had instantly just expelled, um, somehow kind of nationalized every business in the country and took control, whatever that meant, um, in a kind of Leninist way, there would have been a massive flight of capital, a massive flight of skills, um, and the economy would have been bankrupted. So I don't think they had any alternative but to pursue the strategy that he did with the, the backing of the entire ANC, by the way. However, as I also say, um, there has not been enough economic trans transformation. And it's difficult. Uh, you know, we find, and I say this as a, as a Labour minister, uh, we find that, uh, you know, serving under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, bringing about economic change in a in a Labour Party direction, socialist direction, social democratic direction, whatever label you want to give it, um, is really hard. In in terms of a you're in a under globalisation, the neoliberal kind of hegemony that there is. Globally, it's really hard. You can't afford to lose market confidence. You can't afford to have withdrawal of foreign investment and all of that. So it's a big battle to bring economic transformation. Uh, and I think it should have been started earlier under Mandela and certainly under Mbeki. Um, 
And if there's a criticism to be made of Mandela, it is that he didn't start that early enough. There was a process of black economic empowerment that had resulted in the creation of a new black elite, a new black middle class, which is all to the good, but um, at least the middle class part of it's to the good, not, not, not you know, replacing a white elite with a black elite doesn't fundamentally alter the inequality in the society, which has actually got worse, um, as it has in all parts of the world, including Britain. And I put that down to neoliberalism as much as I do to the failure to transform. Um, so I'm, I'm very kind of uh, critical of that sellout mm-hmm. accusation. I think it's ahistorical. I think it's um, uh, politically juvenile. But I also think that there should have been a much more determined, you know, progressive year by year spreading of wealth and opportunity. Whilst growing the economy, you don't grow the economy, you can't do this. And one thing that stopped any of that wealth distribution or and simultaneously stopped the economy growing um, and has taken this black idea of black economic empowerment and twisted it and into something unrecognisable has been the influence of the Gupta brothers under, under former President Zuma. Given what's happened in recent weeks where he's been, he's going to, uh, he's been released from jail and do the rest of his time outside of jail, it looks like. Um, do you see anything, because you talk at the end of the Pretoria Board about the fact that the Gupta brothers need to be brought to justice and if, you know, it would be good if they could face trial in South Africa at some point, but do you ever see that as realistically happening? And more importantly, you talk a lot in the Pretoria Boy about the international corporations, consultancies and banks that facilitated all this corruption over the past decade or so and prior to that. What hope do you see of any of them changing the way that they're behaving and or and or being punished for the, for for their facilitation of this corruption? Well, as I say in towards the end of the book, um, and I gave evidence to the the commission chaired by Judge uh, Deputy Chief Justice Zondo, uh, looking into this whole era of of President Zuma and the Gupta brothers corruption stranglehold. Um, It takes two to tango. And it wasn't just the corrupt politicians uh, under under President Zuma and his cronies, the the Gupta brothers, but actually the corporations, the the banks, the HSBCs, the the Standard Chartered, the Bank of Barodas, who all facilitated that money laundering, that that massive billions of rand, hundreds of millions of pounds that were money laundered abroad through their digital pipelines into Dubai, through Dubai and Hong Kong in the main, but some through London. Um, and, and, you know, and then all the corporations, the KPMGs, the McKinsey's, uh, and so forth, that all owned up eventually to their complicity. You asked me, do I see any chance of the Gupta brothers being arrested and brought to trial in South Africa? Well, I hope so. Now, finally, got the British government to impose sanctions on them, as the American government did a year ago. That was quite a battle that I pressed the Conservatives hard for. Um, unless you have determined international governmental cooperation and the 
the acts of cooperation of the banks, the financial institutions, the lawyers who help set up all these shady shell companies that are conduits for money laundering, the estate agents who you know, find properties for them to invest their gotten gains in, the consultancies who, you know, um, uh, kind of help design all of this, and the auditors who, who, who basically give soft audits to it. All of this went on. And, you know, when I exposed it in the House of Lords, I, I, something very interesting happened. While it was a story all this corruption uh, and cronyism under Zuma and the Gupta brothers was a South African story being exposed by brave investigative South African journalists. And there were, you know, a number who were, were incredibly brave. Um, while it was a South African story, it was, you know, in a sense, confined to that space. When I did what I did in the Lords, it appeared on the front page of the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and so on. And it became an international story. And that's when the head of McKinsey and the head of KPMG mm. and the directors of HSBC and Standard Chartered, you know, all all asked to see me in my House of Lords office, which I was happy to do. Um, because suddenly their global reputations were being trashed because of what their South African arm had done. But it wasn't until that time that they felt the heat at all. And they, you know, in a sense, they made all sorts of promises. I don't think much changed. I think if there were another President Zuma somewhere, whether South Africa or anywhere else, and the equivalent of the Gupta brothers, I suspect much the same would happen. There is not, I mean, there's two million, sorry, there's two trillion dollars a year money laundered. Each and every year. I mean that that's that's much bigger than most economies in the world, um, much much bigger, uh, and that's happening every year through all these household names being complicit in it. And um, you know, a point I make in Pretoria, boy, is you and I want to open a bank account. We have to go through all sorts of hurdles to do so. You know, identity proof of address, all these sorts of things, and you get checked up on them. I'm not questioning that. But then these international criminals like the Gupta brothers just get away with blue murder. <laughs> so, you know, you're asking me, do I think there'll be change soon? Not until every president, every prime minister, every government of the world, and that means Beijing and Washington, it means Moscow and London, it means you know Berlin and Paris and China is very important in this. Um, Dubai, which is an ally of Britain's through the United Arab Emirates, is very important in all this. They are all money laundering havens, frankly, and I don't think anything will change until there's um, global political leadership that's absolutely determined to root it out. You said London. You mentioned briefly at the end of the book about the COVID procurement and the fact that the Tory party used companies run by their mates to supply stuff during the COVID pandemic. Is there any comparison between the corruption in the ANC and the corruption in the current Tory party? I don't think uh, there is really. The scale and the shamelessness of the of the corruption that is still plaguing the the system because it's like a cancer once it's in there. 
you know, it's very difficult to, once it's in the body, it's very difficult to root out. Once corruption has widely infested at every level of government, it's hard to root out. So I, I don't make any real comparison, but I don't think that, um, you know, British politicians should just look down their noses at what's been happening in South Africa and say, oh, well, nothing like that happens here. We had the MPs' expenses scandal, you know, in a little over a decade ago, right at the heart of of our politics. We had, um, you know, we had the, we've had all these dodgy contracts being given out without proper tendering to friends of ministers of, of this Conservative government during COVID, and similar things have happened elsewhere in the world. Um, so, you know, I think you have to keep a BDI out for this sort of thing everywhere. Do you have time for one last question? Yeah, sure, sure. Brilliant. Um, given your incredible story, what would you say is your proudest achievement and maybe what is a regret that you have? The proudest achievement for me uh, was in negotiating under Tony Blair the Northern Ireland Settlement of 2007 that brought you know, those bitter blood enemies, Ian Paisley Sr. and Martin McGuinness, former IRA commander, to share government together. Um, the next one is the uh, stopping of the 1970 cricket tour, which nobody, people didn't think was possible and we managed to do it. The third one, which, you know, we narrowly won the Welsh referendum. And I was one of the leaders of that campaign as a, as a minister under the junior minister in the Welsh office appointed by Tony Blair to um, prior to devolution to was part of the the remit to to win that campaign and was very narrowly won. In retrospect, if you look at it, it was an extraordinary result because only you know this was nineteen ninety seven then in, in um, nineteen seventy nine Wales had voted four to one in a referendum against having a legislative assembly. So to win it narrowly is a massive swing of opinion. And I think what I did in that campaign, and most people um, objectively would agree, um, was pretty decisive. So amongst other things, those are the three that I would pick out um, because you know each had a, has had a decisive impact. But there are lots of other things I'm proud of. My one regret is standing for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party in uh, 2007. Uh, having been pressed to do so um, by lots of people, including trade unionists who then switched to, to support other people, which they're entitled to do. And, you know, uh, some of the people closest to me urged me not to do it. And I, in, you know, I, di I didn't do well in the contest. I came, um, uh, I came second from bottom and um, it was clear that I didn't have the support that I thought there might have been there six to nine months before when people who were urging me to stand. So I, should have, I shouldn't have stood. And then, of course, the worst thing about it was there was a dysfunctional side to the campaign. And somehow, having reported in line with uh, the, the regulations, um, a massive donations, tens of thousands of pounds of donations, somehow, unaccountably, unknown to me, we didn't report another batch. And long over the after the um, campaign had ended, and you know, a lot of campaigns found themselves embroiled in these 
in these sorts of things where no money was stolen, not a penny went into my pocket, but um, a mass of undeclared donations meant that uh, the Electoral Commission, for some bizarre reason, referred it to the police and I had to stand down from the Cabinet until my name was cleared that it was, that I had done nothing wrong. Um, uh, and then I came back uh, as a Cabinet Minister um, afterwards. So that that's obviously, you know, was really upsetting. And in the end, I, you know, I shouldn't have stood for the deputy leadership. And instead of negotiating the Northern Ireland peace settlement and getting legislation through the Secretary of State for Wales, which I was doing simultaneously to, to strengthen the devolution settlement, you know, I should have actually said, look, I don't really have time to wage this deputy leader campaign and it saved me a lot of grief. But so that's my one regret. It seems to be a, a consistent theme running through your life, really, getting accused of things that you really <laughs> didn't do. <laughs> so, yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe something's somebody's had it in for me, Joe. I don't know, but in the end, I'm still smiling, and uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm I'm proud of what I've, of what part I've been able to play in in, in both British politics and in. Uh, in change in South Africa, but you know, other people have played much, much bigger roles. Uh, and but I'm proud to have been able to do what I've done. And you know, to the extent that I have a message for anybody else, I just try to I say this near the in the Pretoria boy. Um, you know, in politics, you can get quite easily get sort of self centered and try to be somebody. I always say. Don't try to be somebody, try to do something. Um, that's my motto. And, and my, my associated motto is trying to make a, try to make a difference in whatever small way you can or even if you get the chances I've been privileged to be able to do, to do so in a big way too. Um, that would be my other kind of uh, message. Uh, if you know somebody younger like you or others getting involved in politics, try to think of those things above all. And, It'll do you good, but it'll also do the, the values that you believe in and the cause that you're fighting for are good as well. And there's that Mandela quote that you use similar to that in, in Rhino Conspiracy and you mentioned it in the Pretoria Boy as well. I can't remember what it is, but it's, it's something about how your impact on... You, I'm sure you remember yeah, it. You know, it's, uh, the, the, in a nutshell, it's, uh, it's quoted there, so you can quote it accurately. But it, it's, the point of being is not you know, simply to be, it's to make a difference. It's to make a difference, and um, that's a Mandela has got lots of memorable um, adages, but that's certainly, uh, I think, for me, the most important one. What counts in life is not the mere fact we have lived; it's the difference we have made to the lives of others. Exactly, spot on. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and thank you for speaking so candidly. I really thoroughly enjoyed reading both the books, um, and it's been great, great speaking to you. Marvellous. Thanks, Joe. Uh, it's really enjoyable speaking to you as, uh, as well, and, and good luck yourself and your personal future, but also good luck for what you're trying to achieve politically. Cheers. Thank you, Peter.